Welcome, everybody, to episode 175 of the Metabilis 2 podcast, which features myself, Ben. And I am David. And I am Greg. Hey, Greg, welcome back. Thank you, guys. Welcoming Greg back to the podcast after many a long year where you've been absent. I checked. The last time we had Greg on was episode 19. No way! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, we should have you on more, Greg. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's 2016, ridiculous. December of 2016. December so of 2016. Almost, almost uh, three and a half years, yeah. or more than well, almost four <laughs> years. So I was going to say you're a regular, but you're not. Yeah. Well, you guys are industrious. <laughs> well, it's it's like it's, ants. It's like it's, Zarby making a podcast. It's a treadmill. It's a Zarby <laughs> treadmill. It's it's all it's all David. It's all David. It wouldn't happen at all with if I had anything to do with it. Uh. Well, it's great to be back. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. Here in much different circumstances than 2016, but here we are. True. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that happy days will be here yeah. again yeah. very shortly. Yeah. Let us hope so. But even then, we're still in COVID land. Still so in COVID land. Who still, knows? Still, still riding the Trump train. Still, <laughs> still <laughs> barreling towards the end of January is when Brexit will finally sort of happen. Mm, hard Brexit. Yeah, hard Brexit. Exactly. Yep. The hardest of all hard Brexits. Yeah, like eggs. Like eggs. I think that's, yeah, is there a eggometer of Brexit? So there's hard Brexit, there's sunny side up Brexit. Soft there's Brexit. scrambled Brexit. Yeah, yeah, yes. soft Brexit, soft boiled. Brexit. Yeah, they, they, we, Brexit. you should suggest that. <laughs> yeah. You should suggest that to um, <laughs> Boris. To the people who, who take note of such things. So look, David, hang on. Um, uh-uh. you, you need to explain what, uh, I think again for our listener, which is basically Greg, uh, <laughs> and Peter, I suppose, um, uh, and Brian Peter too, yeah, and, Brian. and Jess, and Brian, Jess, maybe they, they're, they're just too busy tinkling the ivories. Um, with the premise for this current series of podcasts for new listeners. All right. So this past summer, Ben and I have been going over Tom Baker's legacy in Doctor Who and the long shadow that I think he casts over all of Who. And so this fall, we've been asking friends of the podcast, such as yourself, Greg, to come on and give their perspective on Tom Baker. Now, I know you and I grew up in the Twin Cities roughly at the same time, and we so we probably have uh, the KTCA connection watching Doctor Who on the air. Absolutely. Uh, as the main feed or primary source of our hoodum. That's correct. Our unending hoodum that we had that we were really lucky to have <laughs> back then, too. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that these guests have, have kind of thrown into sharp contrast is that something I didn't fully understand, actually, that, you know, you had um, certainly in the Twin Cities, you had Tom Baker basically on rotation through a large proportion of the 80s, right? Yeah, he would be on, and then I feel like they switched to Peter Davison at some point. Yep. And then... About 80, yeah. 83. Yep. Yeah, they kept that going, and then they would just... I forget when, because this is all when I was a kid, but... It's like 30 years ago. Yeah. And then they started playing Hartnells and a couple of Troutons, I think, that they had, mm-hmm. and then Pertwee. Mm-hmm. But I remember Pertwee being on quite a bit, too, because mm-hmm. uh, John Pertwee is my brother's favorite doctor. Ah, if he no, If really. he had to have a choice, I think he prefers John Pertwee a little bit more, so uh, we would watch him together. Uh, and they were late night. They were oh. like Friday and Saturday nights. Yeah. They were super late. Yeah. Oh, sort of the kind of midnight movie sort of slot thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Doctor Who would usually start around 10 o'clock unless it was a pledge break, and then they would push it later wow. yeah. and then interrupt it. Yeah. Hmm. Hey, Greg, do you remember the Doctor Who 20th anniversary special in primetime hmm. at all? Ah. Were you watching this? I must have. I must have because we recorded it on our VCR. Hmm. Uh, so my brother Andy and I, we watched the five Doctors constantly, <laughs> constantly. We had that one for sure. Was there was there maybe a, a show? Did they have like a documentary on too? Does that sound familiar? Would they have had something like that? Uh, the only documentary that I remember watching growing up on KTCA was something around Silver Nemesis. Oh, oh wow. the making of Silver Nemesis thing. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, which which is unavailable. You can't get that. It's not a D. They have it on the vhs but you can't get it on mm -hmm. the dvd because of i don't know weird american licensing stuff or something hmm. yeah so i've never seen it somebody wanted too much money i'm guessing yeah <laughs> lucrative so, so what's more money than the bbc <laughs> were willing to pay like 50 uh, quid or something yeah. i think you can find it on youtube if you really want to yeah watch it. i don't really want to watch uh -huh. it that much oh, it's silver nemesis silver come nemesis. on Somebody with a warehouse full of those VHS tapes. Yeah. Do the, do, 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 do the punks get a good showing in the documentary? The hung upside down skinheads? <laughs> uh, yeah, they really touched on their sensitive Excellent. side good. and how they're misunderstood okay. skinheads. No, I, I don't think they got a mention oh, right. at okay, all. Okay, that's a shame. <laughs> okay, so here's an immediate question, Greg, maybe to get you started. Do you have a favorite doctor? And if so, is that Tom? It's Tom. It's Tom. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's Tom. Okay. <laughs> no matter what, I know. And I, I flirt with the idea of like, and I love all the doctors, but yeah, Tom is definitely the one that imprinted himself upon me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it was, was just, there. just through repetition or? Uh, repetition, but also just how, just how funny he is and just how much he could elevate an episode mm -hmm. to uh can take a kind of a lukewarm script and at least add his charisma and his little panache to it yes yes did you remember watching it in order or did you kind of pick <laughs> up tom baker midway through his first or second run <laughs> do you remember what your first episode was story was yes i, I think it must have been the seeds of doom mm -hmm. well from the beginning omnibus or in at like five o'clock oh uh, probably the omnibus because mm -hmm. that would have been on late at night yeah and yeah. i had discovered doctor who staying at my best friend nate's house who just lived like two blocks away and his parents were a bit cooler than mine <laughs> i feel like like they they might have uh smoked a little you know here and there <laughs> and that's why they liked doctor who <laughs> back then they seemed like cool old hippies versus my parents were a little bit more straight laced although yeah. my parents were incredibly permissive in letting my brother and I stay up late and watch this stuff in the first place and like watch late night with David Letterman during the week. Wow. Like, school nights. How did we get away with this? <laughs> yeah, no, most people who are parents wouldn't do that. Uh -huh. uh, but Nate's parents were really cool and yeah. Pretty laid back. Having that on, yeah, and watching something like that late at night and letting the kids watch it. Mm -hmm. and man seeds of doom is pretty violent uh-huh but it <laughs> yeah, hooked you they, they were cool with it oh yeah yeah uh -huh. yeah that was a great one um so i must have watched that and then i would catch episodes as i could i mean i was pretty well hooked from there but if right. you go on a family vacation or something next thing you know you've missed out on two or three or four right. stories right. 
Um, so it must have gone, and then Tom picked up again. I definitely remember watching Robot mm-hmm. on First Pass and still being a kid. Did you trade tapes in, like, with Nate or other friends and stuff just to make up gaps? Or No, we should have. We really should have. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we had one blank tape that was in, like, a hard clamshell case. It was, like, the one we could use that, like, my mom would record Dynasty on. Uh-huh. And my dad would record, like, in Fisherman episodes. Like oh, yeah. It had. Yeah. And it, it came <laughs> yeah. with little, uh, little, uh, like, a little alphabet of numbers and stickers that you mm-hmm. could put on mm-hmm. there because you were going to keep these forever yep. for archival purposes. You didn't want to waste it with hand lettering. You wanted no, to... yeah. To Professional. <laughs> get all, all those little stickers, yeah. Oh, man. So what was it about Seeds of Doom that hmm. captured your imagination? Gosh, that one is so dark, like, just in the lighting in the mise-en-scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's dark, it's dark. Uh-huh. Those first two episodes in Antarctica in that base you know they're just dark and gloomy it's you know generally a it's a horror were you in monster movies at all before that like some of the old oh yeah yeah absolutely yeah my friend nate is still a big horror movie fan i am i'm not so much but so so appreciate it so like the kind of hammer things or the universal Mm -hmm. monsters or what kind of monster movies were you watching oh no no as as i've mentioned we had Fairly permissive parents. We were watching slasher movies and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, like like Friday the 13th and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. Nightmare okay. on Elm Street oh, right. and awesome. uh, Critters. I remember Critters. That was a big one for so us. Wouldn't, so w- wouldn't have Seeds of Doom seemed a bit tame? Well, when you're that young, I feel like the, it's the feeling of scary. dread and horror. Yeah, right. yeah. It's kind of more the impression of it because certainly... I don't remember all of these like little facts about Gallifrey they would sprinkle in or little mm-hmm. things like that. Which is how I wonder how kids today, kids who grew up on the Moffat series, must feel. <laughs> because there's so many things like, oh, you didn't see that in the background of that episode? Oh, that gave away the whole that's the whole season makes sense now if you saw that one little thing that was different. Like, how do little kids pick up on that? When you're that young, you're kind of just experiencing it. Not not as shapes and colors on your set, but pretty close. <laughs> so the feeling it gives you, and I think especially Dudley Simpson's music, that just draws you right into the show, too. Mm-hmm. That's kind of an interesting perspective, because you're a musician, and did any of the Simpson scores from seasons, what, 12 through 17 stick with you or something? Are you, like, doing drum accompaniment to, like, Pyramids of Mars or something like that? That would be great. That would be great if I could. (laughs) The funniest thing about all of that Dudley Simpson music is that it's it's all different, but it's still all has that vibe. So it's all dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun in my mind is basically (laughs) that's going to show up. (laughs) Yeah, and then the little things that are different about it. But just that, Mm -hmm. you know, just that phrasing is so dramatic and brings you right into it um but no i i couldn't tell one from the other especially back then yeah or even now sometimes i'm sorry to say <laughs> one of the things that i was interested in actually doing this retrospective thing with david is talking about the kind of alienness of mm. the kind of british settings to the mm. young american viewer and the kind of familiarity of those settings to the british viewer so you know the big house in Seeds of Doom. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Antarctic setting is in a studio, so that's fine. 
But the big house, <laughs> which to me was like, oh, yeah, it's one of those big houses. Yeah, fine. Yeah, we go to those all the time. Because mm-hmm. you can, you know, they're usually open to the public and you can walk, go and wander around. Um, so, again, you know, in terms of sort of rooting it in my own reality, it's like, cool, next time we go to one of those big houses, mm-hmm. like, there could be a crinoid, like, hanging around, and that would be awesome. Oh, wow. But to you, was that a familiar setting? I guess maybe if you'd been watching, you know, spooky house horror movies, it would be. But was it, did it feel like that kind of house or just kind of a normal place? Or hmm. I don't know. I think the closest analogy would have been, like, the mansions in the evening soap operas like Dallas and Dynasty and Falcon Crest, I guess. Interesting. Maybe. Right. That's maybe the closest analogy. Okay. Huh. But that is a TV setting, and this is a TV show taking place within a TV setting, so that yeah. you know, brings it home. Yeah. Makes it a bit familiar. So if that was the first you saw, hmm. did you then have to watch kind of all of Tom Baker and then it kind of rewound back to Robot again, or how, how did that work? Correct, yes, I- I feel like that's what they were doing. Right. They would show as much as they had and then come back to it because that was the spot. That was the evening. That was the spot for it. And it, it must have been pretty well regarded here, I would think. They had it on for years and years. I have a secondhand copy of the picture disc, the album with like the sound effects and the music mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. was one of the uh, incentives to donate to PBS. So, oh, I also have it, but I... Put it through my washer, unfortunately. I have a TARDIS tea mug where the TARDIS is supposed to be blue and then turns white as you put hot coffee or tea in it. Yeah. But if you put it in your dishwasher... It wrecks it. The exposed, prolonged hot water. Yeah. (laughs) So it's it's a permanently invisible TARDIS on the tea mug now. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's like a collector's item then. It's it's like the TARDIS yeah. out of uh, the beginning of the invasion with uh, Troughton. It's the invisible TARDIS. <laughs> An invisible TARDIS mug. Like yeah, like yeah. any, but that's any a good way to sell it. Yeah, any white or black, any single color mug is a is a is an invisible wow. TARDIS mug. It's the TARDIS from the Celestial Toymaker. Uh, yeah, dematerialized TARDIS. <laughs> the dematerialized TARDIS mug. Yeah. Uh, wasn't it? It was. It was painted white, right? Or was it painted pink or something in uh, Celestial Toymaker? I think white and Toymaker and pink in uh, Happiness Patrol. Happiness Patrol. So uh, like a pink mug yes. is a, is a is a TARDIS in Happiness. Patrol. You could have a whole rainbow collection. Yeah. Yeah. Of Might in, as well. Invisible TARDIS mugs. So yeah. when it kind of whizzed back from Logopolis mm-hmm. back to Robot, was that a confusing mm-hmm. moment? A little bit, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah? You'd think, ah, oh, the end has been prepared for. Or has it? But at that time, too, there was also another doctor running on, like, Saturday night. If Tom was on Friday mm-hmm. night, then it would be either Pertwee or Davidson <sighs> or... Thank you. Yeah, Hart- yes. Hartnell or Troughton running yep. on Saturday night. Wow. Yes, I was wondering about this coming into this, uh, into doing this podcast. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so it was two nights, mm-hmm. different nights, different time tracks. So oh, good. Yeah, because that, I feel like the amount of Doctor Who that I consumed back then, and for how broadly of the time spectrum of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I feel like I, I fell out after they stopped showing Colin Baker episodes when they ran out of Colin Baker's yeah. and that was that was the two doctors it took a while for them I think to get trial here mm-hmm. and yeah. by then I was checked out I had moved on to other things I think mm-hmm. it just it had taken so long for them to show it here we had mainlined all of Doctor Who that was available by Lionheart who was doing distribution mm-hmm. for BBC at that time 
And so diehard fans were also picking up Target books to pick up the missing books, according to the Celebration of Time, Peter Haining's book, because you kind of had that checklist of sort of like, for me, it was awful confusing where you were looking forward to a particular story and then it would jump because they didn't have any footage or anything of it. So they would just skip to the next one. So the Troughton years especially were really... Uh, spotty spotty and jerking around yeah and they wouldn't play like the invasion which uh bbc finished in early 2000s with animation so you you'd miss oh yeah the big stories and troughton really was pretty much the crotons and the dominators and seeds of death and the war games that was your troughton experience and then you were into pertwee right away and pertwee would oscillate between color and black and white that's right gosh so spotty Another spotty thing about Lionheart, <laughs> to throw them under the bus a bit, because mm-hmm. I'm sure they're they're gone, they're long gone. When I won the costume contest at the Peter Davison attended Doctor Who convention, it took forever for Lionheart <laughs> to send me my plush life-size canine. Like, mm-hmm. my dad still remembers that. He still remembers having to write uh, strongly worded letters to them. Really? <laughs> about when are we going to get this thing? Wow. Mm-mm. Yes. That's so, harsh. You know. Yeah. Because you, cause you, you were just a kid. You were like probably yeah. desperate for a plush canine to turn You're about up. 10 or 11 years old, I, I think, probably. Oh, around. nine. I nine, think, okay. Even. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny remembering on it. It seemed like the one with Peter Davison and then the convention with Colin Baker and Patrick Troughton were ages apart but they must have only been a year tops yeah because jnt was really heavily in promoting doctor who in the states and i think in part it was because he would get a vacation paid for by bbc Mm -hmm. to come and travel the united states and surely not that couldn't have been the reason He would spend, I, it, it seemed like he would spend more time promoting in the States than he would in the UK. And I don't know if that was reflective yeah. in the UK at all, Ben, growing up. But Doctor Who was being heavily promoted on public television by JNT in the convention circuits. And I don't think mm. the UK had anything comparable to that other than Longleat. Um, well, I mean, obviously, I can't compare because, you know, I've got no idea. I mean, I've right. got no idea what was going on in the States. Um, by the mid 80s, I was drifting away from the whole thing anyway. I mean, it was promoted in terms of it's on the television, but it wasn't really promoted in any other kind of way. I mean, I mm-hmm. guess there was the Longleat, there was Blackpool, um, mm-hmm. there was. If you um, read the magazine, if you read Doctor Who. There was Doctor Who magazine, Doctor Who I guess. Um, but there wasn't the kind of. Yeah. You know. Because, I mean, cover I think. Cover of I, the Radio Times. There was Cover of the Radio Times for the Five Doctors. Um, mm and there was you know there was the there was the woodstock at longleat which was a big deal mm-hmm. but i don't think we really did the kind of american fan thing that americans were doing i think we caught that from you basically and that was really mm-hmm. only in the 90s when that really started happening so like kind of fanzines and conventions well i guess there was the dwas convention thing but I don't know. I, I I don't think I was involved enough to really to really compare. But I'm mean, America's a bigger country. There's more people, mm-hmm. um, even a kind of micro audience like PBS. You know, there's probably you know millions of people watching it, which is you know equivalent to the UK. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh no, I had stiff competition in that costume contest. Yeah. There was uh, there was like yeah. eight or nine people on stage and a functioning Dalek. Wow. <laughs> but you were you were probably the only nine year old Patrick Troughton though, right? Exactly. There yes. you go. You see, Smart <laughs> the kid <move>. wins. <laughs> the cutest wins. The, yeah. cute, the cute kid wins. <laughs> so do you still have your plush canine, or did that uh, get lost in? adulthood yeah oh no that perished yeah i feel like that that probably got tossed around the house so much playing doctor who because as we all know canine and the show would just get abused because <laughs> <laughs> tom baker kind of hated canine did you like canine as a kid i loved canine yeah. canine was brilliant yeah <laughs> yeah ben ben was a little bit older and just never liked canine. Yeah, I never really I... warmed to the robot dog thing. <laughs> uh, so was it was it was it like a squashy canine? Uh, kind of. Well, no, he was he was pretty solid, but it was a stuffed animal's quality of build. And it was the size. It was the size of a regular canine. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll send you guys some pictures. <laughs> yeah, because you Tweet know what? Out. I'm not sure. Sh- I'm not sure. Sh- <laughs> was that ever available for anyone else? as like a toy. I don't know. I don't know if that would have been, yeah, commercially available in America or so not. So maybe... Did maybe, they have but, them in Britain? I, I never saw I've never seen one. Ah. I'm thinking maybe the delay for Lionheart sending it to is they were making they it. They had made it. That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> someone had made I'm, I'm going to be sexist, but I'm going to say some poor woman in the back office, I'm sure it was. <laughs> it was like having to sew and like then stuff. Begonia Pope made it. Yeah. B- Begonia Pope made it, you know, for some, some bratty kid in, in Minnesota. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. You're probably right. Yeah, it's probably handmade. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because I pro- feel like... If in the Which other cities, yeah, yeah, no, in other cities as they went town to town having the costume contest, it was probably just like you won a signed edition of the key to time or something like that. <laughs> that would have been Who easier. Celebration. Yeah. Yeah. You got yeah. Colin and Pat right there. They can sign it for they you. They can just sign. Yep. And then you could maybe you get mm-hmm. Peter Haining to sign it quickly yep. back home. And then, you know, Bob's your uncle, yep. basically. Yep. yep. <laughs> uh-uh, but no, they were like, oh, no, a kid won. <laughs> what gotta have, have a clutch around. yeah oh. <laughs> uh, but man it really was something that has become a lifelong journey for me <laughs> in terms of watching oh. collecting how how so mm-hmm. does it... oh yep all of the above mm-hmm. even even back then like that peter davison convention there were plenty of people there selling stuff and we went around, you know, and picked up a couple things. Like, I bought the Target novelization of The Five Doctors there, mm-hmm. and Peter signed it for me. Wow. You know, there were badges, all sorts of stuff. And then, of course, you could go to, like, Midway Books or Uncle Spence and Uncle Hugo's, and they had mm, the late all grade. sorts of stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even when I was a kid, my brother and I, we both had a bunch of Target books. I don't know if we read them cover to cover or not, but we had them. Mm-hmm. And as we all know, collecting things, that is sometimes the ultimate pleasure is just having it. (laughs) Collection, acquisition. (laughs) I have almost all of the new adventures I've read, 10 of them. (laughs) I didn't get to Uncle Hugo's until I had wheels, basically. So until I was Mm. a late teen growing up in the suburbs and Uncle Hugo's was like sci-fi mecca. Mm. It was good. That was a good store. And sadly it got burnt down through our this uh, spring due to the yep. George Floyd fallout. <clears throat> but yeah, uh, no. that, it, that is a was... big loss of the Oof. Twin Cities. Yeah, yeah. major. Major. Nope. Just 
floor to ceiling that store was full of books, mm-hmm. full of everything. I'm glad that I, you know, in my later years of being a adult with money to spend that I, you know, had been able to get as much out of there as I could. <laughs> but I mean, they still just had stacks and stacks and stacks of Doctor Who monthlies from the 80s. Right. Still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The taking. <sighs> they just had everything and they didn't put things on sale. They didn't clear things out. So if you're looking for something rare or obscure or, or if you wanted an original cover from like the first printing back in the 60s of some pulp sci-fi novel or something, you could probably find it on Uncle Hugo's. So that's one of the things that I really miss miss about it. Like, I would always go there for, like, old vintage 1980s gaming stuff that you just pick through mm-hmm. some of the boxes or something, and you might find a copy. Yeah. So that, that was always uh, always a treasure trove. So, yeah, they're, they're missed. And it's part of what made the sci-fi scene in the Twin Cities really strong is you'd have stores like Uncle Hugo that mm-hmm. would cater to the sci-fi nerd. Oh, yeah. Big time. There was no shame there. Nope. Uh-uh. Embrace your who-ness. Yeah. Gosh, and which I'm, I'm so glad there was because, yeah, when I was a kid, it was like my friend Nate, my brother Andy, and we were the only people into Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Huh. That was it. <laughs> I mean, we'd go to school and somebody saw you reading a Target book, they'd say, Oh, look at him. Oh, what's this? What are you reading, you nerd? Look mm-hmm. at the little nerd reading this. And that was just the teachers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you got off the bus. <laughs> you were 28 years old. Uh-uh. <laughs> it was kind of weird that it was seen as a kids program because it was on after kids would have gone to bed. I guess it debuted right after like Sesame Street at five o'clock or Mr. Rogers Neighborhood and then back in the early 80s. But then by by the time the 20th anniversary special came around in 83, it was a 10 o'clock show. It was geared towards teens and adults. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the best thing about it, and I think what added to the whole attraction of the show is that it was on late it was on after dark if you watched and i still i can't watch doctor who in the daytime <laughs> well right i can't i can do it but man doctor who is for it's for at night yeah. it's for when it's late at night silly things can you know seem a bit more serious or you know the things that don't seem as well done you can buy into it better if it's late at night and you're just in more of the headspace for it than in the cold light of day yeah. Under the cloak of night is when Doctor Who works best. Like for if we go like to RTD Who New Who, the first story with the Ood Impossible Planet, that works really well as a late night mm. horror movie with Toby with the Don't Turn Around. That's that's this like vintage vintage mm. horror. Watching it at noon on a sunny Sunday afternoon, it <laughs> it just doesn't work as well and that's I think one of the key elements of Doctor Who is watching it in the dark. At least for me growing up, it was a late night type thing. Oh, yeah. Well, when I I was growing up as well, it was a Saturday evening thing. But it was was an autumn and winter show. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, again, you know, kind of leaves falling off the trees, it getting dark. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. It's, that's that's like right now. Oh, it's perfect. Me. October's perfect Doctor Who time. It's, it's it is. Doctor Who time for us for us all. Yeah. Which was interesting that Russell Davis brought it back in the spring, and so every every week it would be lighter and lighter out to watch mm-hmm. it if you were in the UK. So I 
obviously it worked, but it's it certainly wasn't embracing the experience that uh, kids had watching it in the fall mm-hmm. in the UK. That's true. Although, do you think would that have been down to the BBC when they wanted to have it on the air? Because I'd imagine Russell T. Davis would have wanted things to be just like when he was young, mm-hmm. in a way, you know, that. I mean, he did get it on after... Saturday nights. Yeah, Saturday nights. Yeah. Did they bring back the Generation game too? Is that right? <laughs> oh, the Generation back was back for a while. I mean, I think, actually, I, as far as I remember, it was the Doctor Who was kind of attached to the big draw for the National Lottery, mm-hmm. which which mm-hmm. was on Saturday nights. And then there was that Ant and Deck show as well. So it was, I mean, really, it was part of the kind of revive because I, I think Saturday night had been a dead zone for a long time. Uh, and Doctor Who really mm-hmm. kind of bought Saturday night back as a, as a kind of TV, family TV watching event. Of course, because it's a great show. Mm-hmm. That it is. Yeah. And you had mentioned that your parents really weren't watching Doctor Who. Did like when you were over at Nate? Was his folks watching along with you, or did they kind of relegate mm. the kids to go watch Doctor Who while they did, you know, mom and dad stuff or whatever, <laughs> hang out? Yeah. Oh uh, no, I remember them watching it. They were into it as well. And yeah, I don't think my parents really did, but they certainly were supportive and took Andy and I to conventions and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And obviously, I mean, at that point, it was their money yeah. that was buying <laughs> all of the Target books. I mean, they bought us even, um, you know, they bought us the Key to Time book, mm-hmm. the Celebration book, those hardback books. Yeah. Those things were $25 back then. Imports. They were expensive. Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was a chunk. That was a chunk of change for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially those big books, I feel like we just looked at the pictures my brother probably read them with more cognitive ability than I did. <laughs> there is always never enough pictures in those Haining books. Yeah. Did gosh, did did you have any pals that watched Doctor Who as well, David? None, none whatsoever. I think I was the only just, one that I knew of in high school who even Yeah. It certainly wasn't mm-hmm. a way to get dates in high school to go up to a girl oh, yeah. and say, Hey, do you wanna come over and watch no. Doctor Who? So Wow. <laughs> and that's that's something Davis had changed quite a bit too because now i think doctor who is more geared or at least under davis's tenure towards young women in the uk and fandom certainly mm-hmm. has changed quite a bit in that time which is which has really been good a great change yeah, yeah. because otherwise yeah. it would be us old uh, <laughs> aging males <laughs> if <laughs> if the show hadn't come back and Davis throwing open the TARDIS doors to everyone. Yeah, and making all the characters have a bit more characterization and a little bit of depth. Yeah. More than we got in the 80s, that's for mm-hmm. sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's been that's been a huge thing. I'm surprised now when I see so many people love Doctor Who now in America, and they're diehard about yeah. it, too. They, they will take no... They will take no criticism. Yeah, it's 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 a different big show. It's a different it. show in some ways uh, because the fandom's different. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's more mainstream, I guess. I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's not mm-hmm. a niche or cult as quite as it was in the 1980s when we were watching. Oh yeah, no, you see uh, you see it on cars and stuff. People have bumper stickers. Mm-hmm. I see it all the time, and it could be because it's we've traditionally been a Who town, but no, I'm sure it's all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know what's a big Doctor Who market, Texas. Really? Do they show it a lot in Texas? Yeah, I remember back in the day that Texas was always, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've I've been going through in prep for this my old Marvel Comics, the US reprints of the Dave Gibbons oh, right. and Pat Mills and Steve Parkhouse uh strips from DWW 
And I'm reading the letter columns, and they are uh, there are a ton of people from San Antonio and Dallas and Fort Worth in the letter columns, writing in letters hmm. in the 80s to Marvel Comics, saying how much they loved, you know, having this available and in color. Were you reading those Marvel comics at that time, or those things that you have those of uh, those things that you've collected mm. later on? Yes, absolutely. No, I was reading those back then. Or at least whichever ones I could get, you know, my hands on. Right. Were they, were they general? I mean, were they kind of just, I'm assuming they were distributed mm. in the same way that Marvel distributed everything else. They weren't kind of mm. niche, right? Yes. Well, they were, they were printed on what is called Baxter paper, which was a better grade of paper than your Spider-Man comics, which would have been on cheaper newsprint. Huh. So they were published on like archival paper and they were sold the price point was a bit higher and they were sold only in comic book shops but in the 80s that was the advent of that market right. and comic book stores becoming more prevalent in mm -hmm. america and collectors so they're out there they must have printed thousands and thousands and thousands of them you can you can still find them pretty easily yeah. which is how i've you know completed my run of oh however many issues it is I think it's basically just all the Gibbons stuff. It goes up to the Tides of Time right. and a little bit after, but pretty much all of the, the Dave Gibbons illustrated issues. Was that when they stopped reprinting them? When Gibbons yeah. kind of... Yeah, I feel like they... Yeah, they stopped. Yeah. I'm sure maybe they weren't selling as much as they thought they would. Although, at that time, that's when... Oh, well, first there was Marvel Premiere, which was like Marvel's test marketing book, which would change every month. Mm. Those were printed on the cheaper paper, and that was like in 1980, 81. They did the first two strips, the Iron Legion, and ah, I forget what the second one is. So they did the Marvel premiere. Right. And then they sat on it after they had published a couple stories. They sat on it. Then in 1984 is when the Doctor Who proper comic comes out. So I feel like at that time, Dave Gibbons was a known quantity. Right. And by the end of it, must have been when Watchmen was coming out. Yeah, so. I think he probably just went... Well, obviously, he'd already done all the Doctor Who mm -hmm. stuff, because I think Mills and Wagner yeah. moved him over. Well, brought him in from 2000 AD. So is Marvel yeah. kind of leveraging his uh, credibility? Popularity. Yep, yep. Though, yeah, though, yeah. So, the Watchmen was DC, though, wasn't it? So it wasn't Marvel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, so, but it's America, and that's the distinguished competition America. is selling... Yep. A lot of books with Dave Gibbons artwork, so I'm sure they were like, "We have all this Dave Gibbons material now; we can print." Yeah. And then when they got to the end of it, I'm sure they were like, "Well, there's no more Dave Gibbons." Yeah. When it, Doctor Who. Stories. Yeah, we're not not doing that John Ridgeway nonsense. They're not doing it for Doctor yeah. Who; they're doing it for Dave Gibbons. They're doing it for Gibbons, yeah. yeah. Who has a very very like... accessible style. Um, oh my god. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, I mean, I like. I mean, I remember these. I mean, I like Dave Gibbons, and I, I you know, I think yeah. he's a good artist, but he's. Very, very mainstream. Mm. They did do the Mick McMahon issue as well. I have that. Oh, really? With yes. the the with the, the Cybermen, the, the Junkyard Demon. Wow, mm -hmm. that yeah. must that must have like because that was like in the middle of the run. So they were like, yeah, yeah it's it like was. One, yeah, they, it's one issue. They kind of like, oh, hang on, this is well. We I can mean, do the fill in. Yeah. yeah, which is an amazing. I mean, that's an amazing two episodes. I mean, Mick McMahon yeah. is a is a yeah, you know, is a god yeah. basically. Yeah. Um. So, did you recognize the Tom Baker in the comic books from mm. the TV? Oh, yeah. Did you feel it was the same? Oh yeah, yeah. He's flogging jelly babies on people, and yeah. of course, Dave Gibbons drew him to look, you know, incredibly like him. Yeah. So that helped. Because I mean, I th I think I think I've read somewhere that you know Wagner and Mills were like were not that interested in Doctor Who. They were kind mm. of you know 
writing a more generic character. Hmm. And I often think that, you know, that that Doctor Who and Doctor Who Weekly is more of the kind of grinning, jelly baby, popping, scarf wearing, TARDIS flying guy <laughs> than, than he is really. I mean, he's, yeah. he's more of a comic book character, actually. He's a lot yeah. more of a comic yeah. book character. doesn't really have the depth of the <laughs> yes. TV. So I was wondering about Gibbons' art. Was he seen as more conventional, accessible at the time, or is that something with the hindsight of comic book illustration? He has a, he has a very, very clear style mm. and was also known to produce work quickly mm. and to be able to tell a story very, very clearly. Um, and it's very detailed. And very detailed, yeah. A lot, know. Of, a lot of comic artists who were kind of just churning it out they don't draw backgrounds all the time i mean he had yeah. background details and you know he could kind yeah. of draw anything which i think must have been one of the reasons why alan moore wanted him for watchman because mm. you know he can draw everything yeah um, and if you have one of these crazy alan moore scripts where that's everything is just detail all the time you want someone who's not going to screw it up by being stylish yeah you want someone who's just going to do meat and potatoes illustration mm. did moore and gibbons intersect then with doctor who is that where they mm-hmm. met maybe because i mean because because alan moore was well alan moore was writing for 2000 ad and he was writing some of the backup strips right for doctor, for doctor who weekly who. Yeah. i mean you know i mean i think in those days like everybody used to hang out anyway i mean mick mcmahon and uh dave gibbon shared a studio in st albans mm-hmm. I, as i believe um mm-hmm. so again you know i think that's probably why you know mcmahon came in to to draw he didn't ink that 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 two episode but he certainly drew it for junkyard demon yeah. yeah you know the nice part about these marvel reprints is they have the alan moore david lloyd you know handful of backups oh, in them. They? oh i didn't know that and okay. that's kind of the only way to get it in america unless you get the actual doctor who weekly issues as well but this is you know in color not that it was meant for color but yeah they've never reprinted those i really wish i mean it, he doesn't it must yeah. be an alan moore I mean, he thing doesn't want them. yeah it must be an alan yeah. moore thing yeah Mm-mm. yeah i'd love to read those again well if estates are anything like any other estate his estate will want them reprinted well that's true he's not dead yet though mr moore he's no. just just a famous curmudgeon yes yes he could he could cast a spell. Yes, he could ask that will make his snake, <laughs> the snake his... god that lives in his toilet. Yes, to, um... yep. Exactly. Glycon will make all of his works oh, disappear upon his death, but he can't be exploited Glycon. any longer. <laughs> Ex- <laughs> Expelled from high school for dealing acid. Yep. <sighs> Was Mr. Moore. Was Doctor Who kind of the gateway to then collecting comics, or were they kind of just feed into an already a comic collecting mm. vibe? Yeah, I feel like they were feeding into each other. Although we didn't, I think aside from the G.I. Joe comic book, which I think my brother got pretty steadily, we didn't, we weren't really dedicated to a, a certain series. So the, I feel like we would just pick stuff up here and there. And, you know, and we liked it. I mean, I I used to draw and make little comic books and little storybooks myself when I was a kid then mm-hmm. too. So yeah. But we weren't we weren't dedicated to anything, you know. We weren't dedicated to Spider Man or the Fantastic Four. Right. We kind of just had them around. <laughs> the big one were the uh, the what if stories from Marvel. I I know we had quite a few of those. <laughs> so my brother must have been a fan of that. Right. 
But Doctor Who is more prevalent too, and not not like now where it's super saturated. But you would bump into Doctor Who things like unexpected places, like the pinball machine was always like the fantastic discovery. Like, oh, this bar or this restaurant has a Doctor Who pinball machine, and you wouldn't expect it. But that's the type of uh, pervasiveness, kind of a, a a low level background hum of Doctor Who in the 1980s throughout the Twin Cities. Yeah. Oh, man, I remember when that pinball game came out. There was one at a pool hall on Central Avenue here in Minneapolis. Yes. Uh, And oddly enough, and that was, gosh, that was more when I was 17 or 18. Mm -hmm. Uh, So my friends and I, who we played pinball a lot anyways, and everybody was, Mm -hmm. I was so psyched when my other friends who knew nothing about Doctor Who played that game and they were, you know, they loved playing that game so we would go and play it on purpose right the whole time i'm just like oh that doesn't sound like patrick Trout. <laughs> kept, it, kept it kept it down but that was a nice little moment we're like ah yeah somebody else they're they're into it for the pinball game at least and it's a pretty complex game. game as well i'm, I'm i don't know anything about oh, yeah. pinball at all I, it, it always seems to be to be to be weird the kind of properties that mm. pinball manufacturers decide would make a good pinball game. Mm. Um, I think it's Bally who made the Doctor Who one. Yeah. Like, you know, there must have been someone, you know, in the back office of that company who was a fan or something. I don't know. Yeah. I would imagine that in the 90s, the rights to get Doctor Who were not, for products, not for actually producing it, were not that difficult or not that expensive. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah that could be a point, yeah. That would explain how Alan Partridge had the rights to K9 for so long. Really? <laughs> and that's a joke. It's, it's, it's a joke from the, the show I'm Alan Partridge. <laughs> what? <laughs> which which okay. shows how how that Whoosh. Steve Coogan is a Doctor Who fan, or at least is a yeah. K9 fan. Yeah. Uh-uh. Okay. And he's, he's, a, he's definitely yeah. a K9 the, fan. The show is about uh, yeah. this character that Steve Coogan plays, who's kind of a desperate... He used to have a talk show, and then he's desperate to kind of be a celebrity again. So he'll mention things like, oh, I own the rights to K-9 to try to impress people. <laughs> uh-uh. Right. But of course, at that point in the 90s, nobody remembered K-9. No one cared. Yeah. So like touching back on to Tom, what would be like your top picks if you're putting on... T- top five Toms. Yeah, Ooh, yeah top, top five, five Toms. toms. <sighs> top five Toms. Top five Toms. Robots of Death. Talents of Wang Chiang. Hmm... Face of Evil. Oh, I'm going to have to... Oh, you know, Legopolis. I love Legopolis. Oh, yeah. Anthony Ainley's first <laughs> outing as the master. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Also, just the whole... Uh, just those first episodes. The TARDIS within a TARDIS within a TARDIS within a TARDIS within a TARDIS. Mm-hmm. That blew my mind as an eight or nine-year-old kid. That was, you know, that still makes a big impression on me. I'm like, that is so crazy. Right, right. How did they never do this on Doctor Who before? Right. And just just how odd it is. I mean, mm-hmm. it makes no, it makes as much sense to me now as it did then. <laughs> of block transfer computation. Sure, that's how we're going to fix the TARDIS. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. So, no, I mean, I love Legopolis. <laughs> yeah. Just to, as as a piece of art, I like it. Right, as right. As a bit of mood and tone. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, Genesis of the Daleks, yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah. Seeds of Doom. Seeds of Doom. 
There you go. Top five. Yeah, top five. five. Yeah. Good, good. Good slice. Deadly Assassin. Yeah. Another one that made a huge impression on me as a kid, too. I think because in that one is just so, you know, just that, that whole bit in the Matrix where there's, mm-hmm. there's barely any dialogue. And you're a kid. It's late at night. And that just washes over you. And it's just so yeah. powerful. Just the imagery of it. Yeah. And just how unlike, you know, that's unlike anything else on television. So did you and your brother and friends do any kind of like playing of Doctor Who? You had mentioned that you had worn out your K-9. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Yes, yes, yes. We we got a new refrigerator at some point in the 80s. Oh, yeah. And you and you guys know what that refrigerator box turned into, the box it came into. Oh, man, that was our TARDIS. Did you get blue? Did you get blue paint or did you just cardboard it? (laughs) We just cardboarded it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I think we cut some doors into it though, so it yeah, had so it opened. Yeah, you could go in. Yes, yes, of course. Oh man, oh that's a time-tested thing to do with a large cardboard box is make a TARDIS of it. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not bigger on the inside on that one though. Refri- nope. <laughs> refrigerator boxes are notoriously three-dimensional. Uh, yes, they are. <laughs> based on they are not transcendental. <laughs> right. Yes. Oh man, and I would make uh, I would make like a TARDIS console out of legos and stuff like that not for us to play with but like for the legos yeah, to yeah. play doctor who with mm-hmm. no i mean yeah, it's just such a great thing of it it's so did you do anything for daleks or who were who are the baddies or were you just exploring how did you go about the play mm. oh we were we were just walking corridors <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean that's the beauty of doctor who you right. can just walk around some corridors and mm-hmm. feel like anything's around the corner i mean you would we would just imagine you know like there's a cyberman there mm-hmm. Although um, a friend of my dad's who uh, he worked with when my dad was a mechanic, mm-hmm. his friend who like lived way out somewhere out in the country, like in Shakopee or somewhere. So we didn't see them very often. But I remember uh, this guy, he was making a Dalek wow. back in the day. And yeah, and one of the times we went out to their house, like the Dalek was in his whoa. garage. It's just like, whoa! <laughs> How are you getting so, so, so somewhere in like Blaine or whatever, there's there's like a Dalek. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. In Minneapolis exurbia. Yeah. Daleks. Yeah. The Shakamur Dalek. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah, and that was the funniest thing is that this is you know a pal of my dad's, and my dad wasn't really you know into Doctor Who, mm-hmm. but he certainly you know was like, oh, that's what the kids like, and. We sort of know about it because we've taken them to stuff. Right. But yeah, it was funny that his pal was a Dalek builder. One of his good friends had made a Dalek. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if he still has it because those <sighs> Dalek built in the '80s, those would be pretty rare. I think even in UK fandom. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there was yeah. the Radio yeah. Times 10th anniversary plans, which I think mm. kind of kicked off a phase of Dalek building. But you know, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think people really did that kind of thing back then yeah. that much and i'm sure this thing was solid i bet too. if this guy's a mechanic was his his regular job <laughs> i'm sure he engineered this dalek pretty well had a two-stroke gas powered yeah it's like the, it's like the chibnall <laughs> the chibnall scout dalek yeah, <laughs> yeah. junkyard sheep. yeah exactly junkyard demon <laughs> oh man oh man just kind of going back to being able to play doctor who i i feel like the whole corridor walking it's just kind of part of the beauty of the show. I know people, you know, now when people write books and review stuff, it's always like, oh, they're just walking down a bunch of corridors. Mm-hmm. Oh, this episode kind of fails. Hmm. They're just corridor walking. <laughs> but, you know, 
to a kid's imagination, anything is yeah. around that corner, right. and that's kind of the beauty of it. And it also made, like, whenever you encountered a corridor in any kind of school mm. or some kind of government building or whatever, mm. it was like, great, I'm in Doctor Who now. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I love them. I love them. The, uh, oh, yeah. That's probably why I love nearly abandoned shopping malls. There you go. This is because that is... And at any point, an a Doctor or- Who adventure could happen. An Orton yeah. could step out one of those windows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not that that's Tom Baker, but you know what I mean. Was there any place in Minneapolis that you do outside Doctor Who? Mm. I mean, there's probably not any quarries in Minneapolis that I can remember, but any... There's the quarry shopping center (laughs) now, I guess. I mean, I guess there was a some sort of quarry nearby. I mean, that was right by... Yeah. um, Was the quarry quarry an actual quarry then? I feel like that was maybe only until the 50s or 60s. It must have by been. The... Otherwise, they wouldn't call it the quarry, would eh, they? Weird. But by the 80s, it was just a trucking oh, lot. Right. Okay. It was just uh, full of trucking trailers right. and stuff. At huh. least as I remember right. it. Uh-huh. There wasn't much there. So if only kids in the 60s in Northeast Minneapolis had Doctor Who, they could have had a quarry <laughs> to play in. <laughs> oh. oh. Uh, would you guys like to talk about an underappreciated... Doctor Who that I'm a fan of? Yeah, sock it to us. Yes, The Sunmakers. Yeah. Yes, which I feel like then, and you might, you know, you'll you, you see this. The Sunmakers is kind of a 2018 story, yeah. isn't it? Like, it's very, it's bleak. Yeah. I, 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 it's bleak. I, th- I think the sun. It's I so think the bleak. Sunmakers is fantastic. I will not hear yeah. a, I mean, the Rebels are a little bit of a bad bunch, as Rebels usually mm-hmm. are. You know, they're, they're the boring ones. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it's yeah. it's grim and it's in the future and it's you know someone gets tossed off a roof at the end, no. so you know Leela's mm-hmm. going to get steamed. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> no, and people are. I mean, it's existentially horrific yeah. too, and just everybody's being charged. Oh to yeah, death. it's great. I feel like I the it. yeah, I feel like in the books, people latch onto the taxation bit of it and try to say like, oh, Robert Holmes, he mm-hmm. didn't like taxes. Um, but I feel it's less of that, and it, I mean, you can replace the taxes with banking fees yeah. now, and right. it becomes much more of a proletariat working class story than. And I don't think Robert Holmes was super well off, and of course, taxes in Britain in the seventies were exorbitant. Yeah, I mean, I think. I mean yeah. that's why that's why the Stones you know gave up on Stargroves and moved to Mystique they or wherever they went, went and made exile on Main yeah. Street yeah in the south of France and they would record you know in Jamaica and stuff all the time then throughout the seventies and Led Zeppelin too they'd all yeah. you know and they actually were rich I mean I think for Holmes it was just the frustration of like mm-hmm. of, as a freelancer having to do your taxes you know which which it, which right. of course in Britain if you have a job your taxes get done for you. If you freelance, you have to do your own taxes like everyone has to do in America. I always find that kind of confusing why that should be the case um, here. But so, yeah, it's a frustrating and irritating process, which, again, I think in some ways the reason why people endlessly go on about taxes here in America is because you have to do them yourself. Mm-hmm. I think that a system in Britain, which, you know, is pairs you earn where you don't have to do your taxes. It's kind of they just kind of happen and you, and you don't have to think about them. Mm-hmm. That's the kind yeah. of difference. But no, I mean, this, the sunmakers, the design of the sunmakers is great. The costumes are fantastic. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I love. I mean, I, I, I like all of that season, really. Yeah, yeah. you know, Underworld, like that one too. Yeah. It's all good stuff. The quest yeah. is the quest. The quest is the quest. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I'd, I'd fight anybody who said that the sunmakers was was, was no good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
Yes, yeah. Ben would demand satisfaction. I would. I would like indeed. Like Leonard Rossiter in Barry Lyndon. I would. Exactly. I didn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, they're so dark, too, aren't they? I mean, like for Sunmakers being called the Sunmakers, so many so many scenes right. take place in, place in this dark Underground, dark world. Yeah. yeah. And Gatherer Hades, Lair, it's all black with just the mm -hmm. couple of people standing out in it and underworld as well it's all even though it's a lot of that is that cso backdrop those are you know they're dark they're caves yeah yeah underworld dark, fantastic dark, dark. <laughs> if you're growing up kind of mingling with uh, doctor who and horror slasher horror films is there one mm. you know we're coming up with halloween is there one that would work that ties in well with Halloween. I mean, Halloween's more of a U.S. thing than it was a U.K. Yeah. thing in the 70s. Is there anything mm. that comes to mind? Oh, wow. If, uh, like, Philip Hinchcliffe mm. used all the Hammer horror tropes and then was like, what is an American horror thing we could make a documentary yeah, from? Yeah, yeah. That would be interesting. Maybe Nightmare on Elm Street, because hmm. that takes place in a dreamscape, which is similar to The Matrix. Mm-hmm. That that could be that could be or and not necessarily a horror film per se, but it is another lifelong passion and pursuit of mine is Twin Peaks. Hmm. I feel like all of the stuff with crossing over and going to this red room in Twin Peaks is ripe for a Doctor Who treatment, as that's sort of similar to going to the Matrix. Also very Matrixy, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean that the original last episode of Twin Peaks of season two. That's a lot of corridor walking for Kyle MacLachlan as Agent Cooper. He's just, he's walking corridors. There you go, Doctor Who. And coming upon horrific things, right, doppelgangers, yeah. right. left and right. Man, that would be... I wonder, wonder if anyone has ever asked sure. David Lynch about Doctor Who. I wonder whether he's seen any. Ooh. He must have done. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think he would be a good director for Doctor Who? Or do you think he would want to do, <laughs> write, direct Doctor Who? I think he'd want to do his own thing. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> he'd probably want to do his own. Well, thing. we had uh, what Ben, ben Wheatley, uh, yep. Ben Wheatley, who you know yeah. does his own thing too. But he That's true. he came in and directed Doctor yeah. Who, and you know yeah. he definitely has his own style. But he, you know, being a, a kid in the UK, growing up with Doctor Who, he definitely wanted yeah, to do Doctor did. Who. I don't know if that would be the same with yeah. Lynch at all. Yeah. So um, it's not he would impossible. Make it no, he'd certainly make it more atmospheric like it was in the 70s. I feel that one of the things that I'm not as big of a fan of, even since 2005, is kind of how fast and rushed hmm. and every every second has either a soundtrack or it has noise yeah. or people talking over it, where 70s Doctor Who had so many kind of quiet moments which could be padding, could be atmosphere, depending on how you look at it. I look yeah. at it as atmosphere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So David Lynch would bring an atmosphere. Uh, I never really get the padding criticism. Mm. I mean, obviously, there were some episodes where they had to kind of stretch them out a bit, but mm. it just makes it better, really. Yeah. Atmosphere is the thing. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It's just a different form of storytelling when you're clipping everything down to the essentials and maybe some of the character beats and... Even I think some of the plotting is stripped away. Maybe that makes it a little less uh, atmospheric at times. But then you get something which is all atmosphere, like Moffat's uh, Heaven Sent. 
mm. where it's basically Peter Capaldi just walking through corridors and dealing with atmosphere yeah. and inner monologues. So it, yeah. it's a mix, but I, I definitely can see where you have the quieter moments. Yeah. You don't really get a lot of those in Modern Who, I think. Not much time for a moment of charm these no. days. Hmm. You know who also would be a dream director for Doctor Who now? David Cronenberg. I was just thinking David Cronenberg. A phenomenal Doctor Who. I oh. Just thinking that. So what of his work that would make mm. you think that? What story, what movie, what, what mm. would you Oh, Videodrome. <laughs> yeah. Videodrome, yeah. Scanners. Oh. I I literally watched Videodrome last night and yeah. I was literally really? I was watching Videodrome going like wow they should have got David Cronenberg to direct Doctor Who because yeah. he's got that off kilter like you know weirdness yeah yeah no uh, he'll he'll just the camera will just be holding on something just a room a, yeah a landscape or something and you're just like much like David Lynch you're like yeah what's coming this yeah. just feels dreadful what is going to happen <laughs> just from the just from how they hold things, and so which which doctor would you do it now mm. with uh, Whitaker, or would you which uh, you <gasps> pick you know you're picking dream director now pick a dream doctor who would you pair Cronenberg up with? Hmm. Colin Baker, give Colin a yeah, give Colin Whoa. a good story, yeah, give Colin nice a one. really good one. <laughs> wow, <laughs> he deserves a really good. He does deserve yeah. a really good filmed one. one. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, and wow, that's a really good thought. Yeah. Colin was oh, a beard. Colin, Colin was a beard in the off-season <laughs> Colin too, and he had a beard like when he came here. And you've poisoned this young Colin. boy's mind. <laughs> that Colin. Oh wow, that is an absolute. That is a dream. That is a dream of mine. Bearded Colin, yeah. directed by David Cronenberg. Eighties Cronenberg, mm. no less. Eighties Cronenberg, mm. yeah, The Fly, <laughs> yeah, all of that. I mean, David Cronenberg is still, you know, a great director, but oof. missed opportunity. He's still a great director, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, that's yeah. Like I said I was literally watching Videodrome last night on on DVD and thinking to myself, "Yeah, wow, this is like a really crazy episode of Doctor." <laughs> <laughs> David Cronenberg doing a Cyberman story. There we go. There you go. Yep, yeah, yep. see such yep. a body horror aficionado. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. There you go. Mm-hmm. Get Ridley Scott Sorted. back. <laughs> Get Ridley Scott back to do a Dalek story. Draven Cronenberg do a Cyberman. He could. They they could do a remake of Attack of the Cybermen mm. with Draven Cronenberg and um and, and, and Colin <laughs> Colin with a beard. Yeah. It would have to be a CGI Colin nowadays, of course, yeah. but uh, that's fine. I would pay good money for that. Mm. Yeah, mm. I'd definitely pay good money for that. So ameliorated between the three of us, that's about fifty thousand each. We'd have to drop to. Uh, Make this production worthwhile. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah, get a get a Kickstarter, Kickstarter rewards, and one 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 of, one, one of the rewards, of course, is you'd be on this podcast. That yeah. is that's one of the Kickstarter rewards. We'd invite. Yeah, you that, that that would be our stretch goal there. That would be stretch goal exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, kind of to wrap it up, then the Tom mm-hmm. years were kind of formative of Doctor Who, then absolutely. For you, I, 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 would, yeah. I would say, yeah, just tons of atmosphere, the music. Oh, just how dark it could be, but then be lightened up by Tom again and whoever mm-hmm. was his companion. Man, it's just... A mix of horror and humor, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it was perfect. It was a perfect mix of that, for the most part. It's uh, it's what made us fans, I think, the Tom years. Yeah. Yeah. We were lucky. Yep, we were lucky. Ah, well, gentlemen, thank you as always. Um, I've loved listening to the Tom recaps here this summer. I mean, gosh, the way the, you know, everything's yeah. going, going for a walk. 
having a podcast to listen to. I mean, I've got plenty of podcasts, but you guys are always a highlight. It's like that's I'm going for a walk. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I know I'm going for a walk on this. I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to get a solid hour listening to the fellas talk yeah. about this or uh, hitchhikers. Solid hour of who based yeah. chat. <laughs> Nattering on about Doctor Who. That's what we do here on the Metabulous too. It's, it's our USP. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for listening to episode 175. I've been talking to Greg and Ben about Doctor Who, the early 1980 years. And I've been doing exactly the same thing, only with David and Greg (laughs) rather than with myself and Greg. And I've been avoiding touching anything on my table as I'm speaking into my computer's microphone to not have any ambient sounds (laughs) ruin this wonderful podcast with David and Ben. I think I heard a dog in the background. A little, a little. Yep. Oh yeah. That'll be interesting. There always, there always, <laughs> it always is around Greg and Jeans. Yep. That's my canine. Cool. Arrivederci. Goodbye. See you, gentlemen. Please attend carefully. The message that follows is vital to the future of you all. <laughs>